Bibles tonight, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 20. We're progressing little bit by little in our study of Revelation in this 20th chapter. And tonight is the fifth in the series on this, well, small mini-series that we're sort of doing in the midst of our studies on the Millennial Kingdom. And this is called the Millennium because of what we read right here in these verses, because there is no other place in the Bible, no other scripture that gives us the length of the kingdom. And there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that are written about the kingdom, but there's none that tells us how long that it's going to last in this form. And here we find it is a millennium. It's 1,000 years, which relates to the time that Satan is held in the bottomless pit. So God's kingdom is not going to end in a 1,000 years. It's not going to end in 10 million years because it is an everlasting kingdom. And we do learn that from the Old Testament. It is an everlasting kingdom. But this particular form of it, is only for a thousand years, and then it changes to a sinless kingdom where there is new heavens and a new earth. And Christ's arrival upon the earth is really the apex in the book of Revelation and is the apex of of the entire world's history. When Christ comes to this earth, he will set up this kingdom and restore the earth to its original pristine condition that it was in at the time of the creation, and the Apostle Paul wrote about this in the New Testament, and I'm, I'm breaking into a sentence that goes on for 14 verses, so you'll pardon me for doing that. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 9, the Apostle Paul said, "...having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ." both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And that, that portion of Scripture tells us that it's God's intent for Christ to be the preeminent one in the kingdom. He has been rejected by men. He was rejected by the Jews. The Scripture says he came into his own and his own received him not. He's been rejected by most Gentiles. But one day all will recognize him as the king and all will worship him as the sovereign Lord. Now, out of many Old Testament passages that speak of this, I've chosen Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, to uh, give us the title of the messages. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And so everyone at that time will know Jesus by his name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that we read in Revelation 19, verse 16, where it says, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now tonight we're going to talk some more about this. And this evening we're going to deal mostly uh, with the government of the kingdom and a few other aspects of it. And our text verses are Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. The word of God says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him 
a thousand years. Now, we've already had four sermons describing the kingdom, and and in each of those I've begun by giving you a brief review of uh, previous material. Well, I'm not going to go back and do much of a review tonight about that. Let me just give you the heading of the first part of the message, and and I'll catch up just a little bit on it. But we talked, first of all, about the resplendent millennium. And in that sermon, I covered life in the kingdom from the aspects of the change in topography, the change in longevity, the change in animals relationally, and also the change in morality. All of those things will be different in the millennial kingdom. That's the subject of the first part. And then we moved on into uh, part number two, which is a change in polity. And polity, of course, means the government. The government is going to change in the millennium. There will be a worldwide absolute monarchy, and Christ is the king. But the king, of course, will delegate authority to others, and so we might say that others will operate under the strict authority of the king. But the word of God says that we are going to rule with him. So we discuss the reigning members of the kingdom. And this is one of the great promises that we have in the Bible, and we're going to reign with Christ. And that's reiterated in verse number 4, and I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. And then in verse number 6, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, we're going to take a little bit more time to talk about uh, the government of the kingdom. And we've already discussed some features of it. We've talked about the thrones of governing. And without going into detail again, let me just say that every believer... From the time of Adam all the way up until the church age, through the church age, to the tribulation, and through the tribulation, everyone that's ever believed in Christ will participate in ruling in the kingdom. And Christ will invest all of his people with wisdom and with knowledge, a measure of his wisdom and knowledge, and all of them will rule in glorified bodies. And that is really a great promise that we have in Scripture. Now, if God had only given us a promise that we would receive salvation and we would receive eternal life, that would be far and away enough to praise him for eternity. But he also promises this. He promises so much more that we are going to have a part of this kingdom. So we'll have a part of government. A redeemed men will sit on seats of government. And that's far better than being a president, far better than being the governor of a state, far better than being in Congress. Certainly none of God's people will be corrupt. And we will rule in a worldwide kingdom. And then we went on to discuss the theocratic government. It's a theocratic monarchy, an absolute theocratic monarchy. And there is no doubt who's who's going to be in charge. I mean, there is no voting in this kingdom. There's only one choice. And there only needs to be one choice. Because that choice is always the right choice. And that choice is to obey everything that the king says. And this is something that Christian people need to learn right now because we are also living in a spiritual kingdom at this very moment. When you became a Christian, you entered into God's spiritual kingdom and he's just as much the king of that kingdom as he is the physical kingdom coming upon the earth. And so it's incumbent upon every person who is a Christian to obey God in everything that he says. That is our duty. Jesus said, if you want to know who loves me, If you want to know who my people are, it's the ones that keep my commandments. And so every commandment of God is righteous, holy, and just. And there are no alternate choices because in this kingdom, the one who has the absolute authority can enforce that authority. He enforces every command. Well, in the last message we left off, 
with the global aspect of the kingdom. It's a kingdom that expands or extends over every square inch of the world. The world, the earth, shall be full of his knowledge and glory. And so the scripture says that all nations will come to him. There are no holdouts. We can call that a political aspect of the kingdom because all nations will come to Christ. But especially, we learn that the kingdom will be decidedly Jewish in nature. And this is because from the time that God established the nation of Israel, he always said that Israel was the favored nation. He told them, uh, he told Israel that the glory days of the Davidic kingdom would be restored and restored in greater measure. And the Bible says that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. When Jacob blessed his sons, he spoke to Judah, and he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh refers to Jesus. He's the last in the Davidic line. And that's for a very simple reason. When you have a king that lives forever, then he doesn't have any successors. And Jesus is the king, the eternal king, who will reign upon an eternal throne, David's throne. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he said, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So Israel will be the centerpiece of this kingdom. And the land will be restored in total to Israel. And that means there's not going to be any concessions to the Arabs and none to the Palestinians or anyone else. And that's not to belittle Arabs or Palestinians. It's just a fact that the land belongs to Israel. God gave it to them. And they're going to get it all back. And they're going to get it back in peace. There's no necessity for walls and none for guard towers and guns and bullets. That's all done away with because the kingdom is a peaceful kingdom. So the Bible says that Israel will dwell in safety and the king will ensure that. He said all the weapons will be destroyed and beat into farming instruments. And the most beautiful aspect of this is the salvation of the Jews. Now they have rejected him. They still remain in unbelief. When Jesus was here the first time, they mocked him, they crucified him, and they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. But the promise is given in Romans chapter 11, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. And so redemptive history according to God's plan, is on the march. And every Old Testament promise is fulfilled in Christ, and the ones that have yet to been be fulfilled are as if they've already taken place. God's promise is so sure, it's like it's already happened. Well, we need to move on tonight, and there's another part of the theocratic kingdom that I want to talk to you about. The second part is the social aspect of the kingdom. And in America, we're, we're very big on the social aspects of government. What can the government do for people? In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson began what he called the Great Society. And it was the intent of government at that time to end poverty and to end racial injustice. And so there was a series of initiatives that poured money into education and into inner-city problems and into welfare programs, all different types of government-funded programs. 
I was only 10 years old when that started. I'm dating myself a little bit now, but I was 10 years old when that started, and I have lived long enough to see what an imperfect government does with a good idea that's gone terribly wrong. Now, today's conservatives look back on the great society and refer to it as the great handout. And you might disagree with me on that, but government has really messed things up. And so the government today is into social engineering, and the government wants to be the great economic equalizer, and whenever that happens, the work initiative is ruined. Now, folks, I'm not ashamed to tell you, I'm a full-blown capitalist. I'm not going to talk politics tonight, but I'm a full-grown capitalist, a full-blown capitalist, not a socialist. And the biblical principle is, if a man does not work, he doesn't eat. And the scriptures teach us that Rich people are supposed to help poor people. That's in the Bible. But rich people have to get rich in order to help the poor. And if they do it honestly, you don't penalize them for it. I mean, if they do it right, don't penalize them. Now, if you take everything that people have in order to equalize society economically, then you take away their work initiative. Now, Jared uh, was telling me the other day that he worked 20 hours of overtime at time and a half, and he said it only made a difference of about $100 on my check. That means he worked for $3.33 an hour. What happened to all the rest of that money? Well, you know what happened to it. The government took it, and they went to pay somebody's medical marijuana bill or something like that. And that's what the government does when they try to fix society. Well, there's only one person that can ever fix social problems, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes... To rule, he's going to take care of all these things and the wealth will be shared in his kingdom because it is a great benevolent society. Only the wealth doesn't come from me and you. It comes from him. He takes everything and he gives people what they need. And I I don't believe that the millennial kingdom is going to be one where people are lazy. But I do know this, that everything that people touch in that kingdom will reap the maximum benefits. And that's because God controls it all. And then also in this great new society, there will be perfect justice. In America, we have what we think is a pretty good justice system, but it has its imperfections, and it leads to some very puzzling court decisions and really some genuine inequities in the justice system. And so we get angry at things, like like when a judge throws out evidence because a criminal wasn't given a lollipop before he was Mirandized. And we get upset about that. And so the American system is we would rather see a criminal go free than for an innocent person to be charged. And the guilty sometimes do go free because a judge doesn't know everything. A judge hasn't seen everything. All all he has to go on is the evidence that someone presents. Every court case that comes before him is an historical event. He, He wasn't there, and so they have to reconstruct this. And unless you live in a Tom Cruise movie or something, you don't know ahead of time, who's created a crime and who hasn't. I mean, this is all an historical event. But there is none of that in God's kingdom because he knows what happened. He, he's the omniscient one. He knows what will happen. Now, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 11 for just a moment, we'll see something here about justice in the millennial kingdom. Proverbs tells us that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. And this description that we have in Isaiah chapter 11 is certainly fitting according to that. So if you'll start, we'll start here in verse number 1 in Isaiah chapter 11. And it says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this, of course, is talking about Jesus. Verse number 3, And it shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Now, the, the, the second part of verse number 3 says, He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, nor reprove after the hearing of his ears. And that simply means he doesn't have to be there to see it. He's not going to depend upon the testimony of others, because he already knows. And so there's not an innocent person that will ever be charged, and not a guilty person that will ever go free, because God knows it all. Now, you, you've always heard this, uh, and... You hear it all the time, that nobody could ever commit the perfect crime. And there may not be anybody who can commit a perfect crime, but there are a lot of imperfect people trying to solve imperfect crimes. And so we make mistakes with that. And so there are murders that aren't solved. There are robberies that go without resolution. There are jaywalkers that never get reported, David. They just they don't know about it. So you talk about a, about a big brother society. I mean, George Orwell had no idea what it was like to have Big Brother watching you. But in the millennial kingdom, it's all good. It's not an Orwellian society because it's not all done for the good of the government. It's done for the good of the people. The benevolent king has everybody at heart, and so they all share in the abundance. Now, let's move on to another aspect of the kingdom, and this is one that that I really find fascinating, but also somewhat perplexing, and that is the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. And the spiritual aspect is about worship. The spiritual aspect, of course, is how you relate to the king on a spiritual level. Now, I can tell you, first of all, that there's only going to be one religion in the millennial kingdom. Only one religion. Now, we've studied in the book of Revelation about the tribulation time, and that's one of the things the devil is going to try to do. He's going to try and reduce all of the world's religion to one religion, And that religion worships the Antichrist. Now, in effect, the Word of God already teaches us that anybody that doesn't worship the Lord Jesus Christ is already a worshiper of the Antichrist. So you have two religions in the world right now. You have the true religion of Jesus Christ, and all others are worshipers of the Antichrist. Now, I hope you come on Wednesday nights, because we're going to get into this in in the book of 1 John, where he teaches that there are only two spirits that operate in the world. Either it's the spirit, the Holy Spirit, or it's the spirit of demons. It's the spirit of the Antichrist, or the spirit of Satan. Those are the only two spirits that operate in the world. Well, in the millennial kingdom, it's all reduced to one religion. So you don't have the other side. You're not going to have all the devil's religions. He's, he's put away into the abyss for this thousand years. So the Antichrist, he, he's going to try to get people to worship him. He'll try to force that, but he doesn't have any control over it. And so God's people that refuse to worship will be killed. And that's why you have all the martyrs that are mentioned in verse number 4, chapter 20, verse number 4. So the Antichrist is unsuccessful at getting everyone to worship him as he wants. But when Christ comes to reign, he will control it all and he'll have success. He'll have one religion and it will be the right religion that properly worships Jehovah God. 
Now today we have different denominations. There are saved people in many of the Orthodox uh, denominations, and, and we would never be ones that claim that only Baptist people can be saved. We don't believe that because salvation is not in the Baptist church. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. But there are different doctrines and there are different ways of worship among those who truly know the Lord. And so you have all these different practices of the many denominations. But no matter what denomination that you might be a member of, you must believe in Jesus Christ alone in order to be saved. And you have to believe in justification by faith alone or you can't be saved. And you must believe in the deity of Jesus Christ or you can't be saved. So that rules out people like Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses and those. And anybody else that says they're a Christian who does not believe in those things that I've just mentioned to you. Well, there are variations of doctrine, though, among those that are truly saved. But when we get into the millennial kingdom, there are no variations in doctrine. There are no denominations either because the church isn't here. It's already gone. And so everybody will also know the truth of what God expected that the church should believe while it was here. All of those matters are going to be cleared up. So you have these different denominations, and we do interpret things differently. And I would have to say to you, you're sitting in a Baptist church tonight because we are unashamedly Baptist. And we're unashamed to say that we're historical Baptists because we do believe what we teach here is the right doctrine. If we didn't, we'd be something else. We call ourselves something else and go join something else. And so you have many people today that want to abandon all of these doctrinal distinctions and they say, we don't really care about doctrine. We just want to be Christians. But Christianity is all about doctrine. The Christian faith is the teachings of Jesus Christ and it's all doctrine. It's the doctrine of Christ and the apostles. And so if you say you don't care about doctrine, then you don't care about Christ. A New Testament Christian is a dyed-in-the-wool doctrinal Christian. The New Testament is nothing but doctrine. So if you say you don't like doctrine and you don't want to be bound by a doctrine, then throw the New Testament away. To be Christian, to be Christ-like, and that's what Christian means, is to follow Christ's doctrine. And you're not going to get it in a place that says, well, does it really matter anyway? We'll preach from the newspaper. We'll preach from Dear Abby or something. And I actually knew a preacher that started his sermons with columns from Dear Abby. Well, we're not that way. But when it comes to the millennial kingdom, all of these doctrinal differences will be straightened out. Everybody will worship with the right doctrine. And nobody is exempted from that. Saved or lost, everybody will worship. Now, I know that sounds a little bit strange because people say, well, no, no, we need freedom of religion. And some people say, we need freedom from religion. You know, nobody is really free from religion. Man is religious at heart. The Bible teaches that. And so uh, he's born with religion. And so if he says, I don't have any religion, then his religion is self. And if he says, I'm an atheist, then his religion is still self. But none of those things are permitted in God's kingdom. All religion is the right kingdom, and it's all the correct worship of the one true God. Now, I said that worship in the millennial kingdom is somewhat perplexing. And I'm going to show you why I say that. Um, there are some good pre-mills that are divided over worship in the kingdom. Now, of course, they're all going to be straightened out then uh, because God's going to show us the right way to worship. But there are good people on either side of this question. And, 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 and the question is about sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. 
And it appears that the Word of God is teaching that during this millennial kingdom of Christ that the sacrifices will be restored. And so the question is, are we actually going to see Old Testament sacrifices again? Well, some say that the Old Testament is figurative when it talks about these things, and uh, some of the prophecies are figurative and some of them are literal. And so I want to show you what I mean. So if you'll, you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 40, we'll see this. And we're not going to actually read from Ezekiel chapter 40. You can just peruse that while I'm talking. And then we're going to look at some other verses in Ezekiel. But the 40th chapter through the 45th chapter, all of that is a description about the millennial temple and about the priesthood. And the priests are chosen just as they are in the Old Testament, and all of them are Levites. Now, we would think, why, why is there a priesthood in the millennial kingdom? Priest is one who offers sacrifices. A priest makes intercession. And for that matter, why do you even need a temple in the millennial kingdom? Because the temple is a place of sacrifice. And so there are some pre-mills that look at this part of it, and they say that, well, the millennium is figurative. And I wasn't really swayed too much on this issue either way. Uh, Again, these aren't salvational matters, what you believe on this. But after I looked into it a little bit further for this series, I uh, am conflicted over this. And, And there are some who say that they're not inconsistent by saying some Old Testament prophecies are literal and some of them are figurative. But I think when you have a system, you better stick with that. That's usually the best thing to do. And the descriptions that we find here in Ezekiel are just too specific to explain away as symbolism. Now, certainly God could have made the symbolism very clear. He could have told us it's nothing but symbols. But we don't find that here. So I can't find a reason for this unless it is literal. So that leaves us with that problem. Why is there a temple? Why are there priests in the millennial kingdom? Why are there sacrifices? Well, let's go over to chapter 45, verse number 13. As I said, all the previous chapters are about, uh, from 40 on, are about the millennial temple, and it all builds up towards sacrifice. And when you read those chapters, it's almost like reading Exodus and Leviticus all over again. I mean, all the rules and the regulations are there for for the tabernacle, uh, as it was for the tabernacle and the priesthood during that time. So if you look at Ezekiel chapter 45, it says in verse number 13, This is the oblation that ye shall offer... The sixth part of an ephah of a homer of wheat, and ye shall give the sixth part of an ephah of an homer of barley. Concerning the ordinance of oil, the bath of oil, ye shall offer the tenth part of a bath out of the core, which is an homer of ten baths, for ten baths are in a homer. What in the world does that mean? What, what is all that about? Well, those are just all measurements that they use in the Old Testament for these different things. Verse number 15 says, And one lamb out of the flock, out of 200, out of the fat pastures of Israel, for a meat offering, and for a burnt offering, and for peace offerings, to make reconciliation for them, saith the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give this oblation for the prince of Israel. Now there, this is talking about the millennial time. And there's some very elaborate, specific rules here for meal offerings and for burnt offerings. And verse number 16 says, All of the people of the land shall give this oblation for the prince of Israel. And the prince of Israel is not Christ. The prince is actually administrator over Israel. Then if you go down to verse number 21, it says, In the first month, in the fourteenth day of the month, ye shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. 
And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. And seven days of the feast he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bullocks and seven rams without blemish daily the seven days. And a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a meat offering of an ephah for a bullock and an ephah for a ram and a hen of oil for an ephah. In the seventh month, in the fifteenth day of the month, Shall he do the like in the feast of the seven days, according to the sin offering, according to the burnt offering, according to the meat offering, and according to the oil? Now there, the Passover is mentioned. And it says there's a sin offering. Now who does the Passover refer to? Well, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 tells us that. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Well, this seems to be very difficult. How are we going to explain this? Because the, the New Testament tells us that Christ satisfied all Old Testament sacrifices. All the ceremonial sacrifices were done away in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Christ, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now certainly we do know that Christ is the once for all sacrifice. We don't make sacrifices today for this very reason. Christ satisfied God for sin forever. So we don't need to make sacrifices. He did all of that by his death on the cross. So he obliterated the necessity for priesthood. And so we could never accept a priesthood of Roman Catholicism, not a priesthood that makes an unbloody sacrifice every week in the Mass. We can't accept that. So how are we going to explain this? Is all of this supposed to be figurative? Well, I've already said, you look at the intricate details in it, uh, that are given here, and it makes it highly unlikely that this is speaking of something figurative. So the explanation of it must be that what this is intended to be is a memorial. Sacrifices are made for a memorial only. Now, if you think about this, this is what the Lord's Supper is for. Uh, the Lord's Supper is given to the church to show us the body and blood of the Lord, to remember his death. It's only a memorial. There is no saving power in the Lord's Supper. It's not a sacrament. It's an ordinance. It's a memorial to show us the Lord's death for sin. Now, in the millennial kingdom, you don't have a church. The rituals and the sacrifices can only be for the purpose of a memorial. Now, there are many people that are in this kingdom, and uh, they're forced to worship Christ, and they don't do it because they love him. They're unregenerate people, and so they don't want to worship Christ. I mean, anybody that doesn't actually know the Lord never wants to worship him. So this is a memorial that looks back at the cross to show them what Christ did. There's no saving power in it. Just as there was no saving power in Old Testament sacrifices, those look forward to the time that Christ would come, and these are sacrifices that look back to the fact that Christ did come. So what you have here is a very vivid picture of what Christ did. So neither those sacrifices, Old Testament or the millennial sacrifices, save anyone, but the person that they represent does save. 
Now, of course, this would never be permitted in the church age. But the church is over. And so you have the kingdom, and you have Jerusalem with a magnificent temple. And that's a place where people come to worship as Israel did in the Old Testament. Micah records in Micah chapter 4, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, another interesting part, I think, is the growing hostility of people that are forced to worship. Now, if you would, let's go to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is an easy book for you to find. If you uh, knew the books of the Bible like the kids this morning, you wouldn't have any trouble with this, but so I'm going to help you out a little bit. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah is the one that comes right before that, so it's not hard to find. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6. And it tells us in this portion of Scripture what happens to those who refuse to worship. Now, those who refuse to worship, of course, would have to be people that are lost because saved people do not refuse to worship the Lord. So starting in verse number 16, rather, not verse 6, but verse number 16, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain... There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. And so it says here that if people refuse to come and worship the king, then he'll smite them with a plague. And I suppose that many of them will die. And those that don't die keep growing in their hostility towards God. And when we get to verses 8 through 10 in Revelation chapter 20, these are the ones that attempt to rebel against the king and come against him to make war. But they never get a chance because God has already ended war at the battle of Armageddon. And so he just consumes them all with fire from heaven. So what we have here then is a look at spiritual life in the kingdom. And it's a little bit perplexing to us at first. I mean, we think about Jerusalem being restored to its glory, Israel restored into its land, a new temple that's built uh, in Jerusalem. And you have all of these people that are not saved that are forced to worship. Now, those that aren't saved... Or I should say those that are saved are not going to be confused by the sacrifices. They're not going to be confused for the purpose of them. They understand that. So this is really going to be an interesting time for the people of God. There's a perfect king. There's a new perfect government. There's a new social climate. There's new spiritual worship. In Revelation 21, verse number 5, it says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So if you're into the new and into the extraordinary and into the amazing and the things that you have never seen before, 
then you need to trust Christ. And when you trust in Him, the Bible teaches you will be a part of the ruling class in the golden age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for the time that we spent in your word. And Lord, uh, thank you for opening up this text to us. Some of these things are not real clear and we have difficulty deciphering all of this. But we thank you, Lord, that you know the answers to all question, all questions. You are the omniscient God. You know everything now and you'll know everything when the kingdom comes. Lord, help us to trust you. Put all of our faith and our confidence in you because you are the one who saves us from our sins. Lord, we pray for each and every one in this room tonight that all are believers, all are followers of you, and they know you personally and the pardon of sin received through Christ on the cross. Bless us now as we sing. We give you thanks for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.